Ron Klain is the chief of staff for President Joe Biden. And good Lord, Ron Klain is exactly the kind of partisan you always thought he was. Ron Klain is the guy who led Ebola response under Barack Obama. And you would think with COVID, he would have been, hey, how do I help? Nope. He was like, hey, how do I help Joe Biden? Politics first, power first, not people. That's Ron Klain. Not because I say so, but because he showed you so. He showed you what came first. The Washington Post put out a story. Republicans unite around a message. Schools should reopen and Democrats are to blame. Well, that's, that's got a lot of good points to it. Schools should reopen. All schools should be open five days a week with the kids in the classroom five days a week. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, Parlor Tony Katz, and everything at TonyKatz.com. Schools should be open five days a week. Republicans are right about such a thing. Democrats are to blame. Hmm. Well, that's where I, I think there's a little bit of differentiation. The the problem with schools not being open may not be your neighbor who happens to be a Democrat. It is very much with unions. Unions are to blame. Now, where I live in central Indiana, I'm not having an issue. Now, they, they do like a hybrid thing, right? It's one day on and one day off. And, and the classes, at least I guess at a certain level, aren't Zoom, right? Maybe that's elementary school. They're not, they're not Zoom. Uh, does I hear your assignments, and some of them are just ridiculous, and some of them are very good. I'm actually, for the most part, impressed with what my kids are doing. Not everything is perfect, but I'm far more happy than I thought I would be with this situation. But in places like Northern Virginia, in places like Chicago, in places like Southern California, it is absolutely the unions that are keeping the kids from going to school because the unions have shown you once again that the kids don't matter to them. The kids are what the teachers do in between contract negotiations, right? There's a contract negotiation, they get paid, and oh, look, these kids come through, some more kids come through, another year more kids come through, okay, another contract negotiation. That's a terrible way to talk about teachers, right? Because you and I both know that there are teachers out there who absolutely care. This is what they want to do. And I do believe that to be true. I believe that to be factual about most teachers. Not all. How could it be all? There are two sides of the bell curve. Let's not lie to each other. The union doesn't care about kids at all. Say it again. Quote me. The union doesn't care about children at all. But I don't know if I could say that about all unions. Now, could I? Because I just shared with you that where I am, the teachers are back. That they're not back full time. That's an issue. But I haven't heard teachers say, oh, we can't have any children. Oh, we will get sick. I haven't heard any of that whatsoever and in any way. I don't, I don't hear teachers here being opposed to it. There are some union people I hear from, but again, that's the issue. Some, not all. In places like Chicago and Southern California, maybe all of California, Northern Virginia, other places, oh, yes, It is the union. So if you don't have kids in schools, it's obvious that it is the unions who are to blame. I don't know if I say the Democrats are to blame. But since you have so many progressives 
who take the side of the unions, who get paid off by the unions, are in the pocket of the unions, exist to do the bidding of the unions in all the ways and all the places that unions exist. Maybe the headline is true. Republicans unite around the message, schools should reopen and Democrats are to blame. Ron Klain responds, schools closed under President Trump and they will reopen under President Biden. You're a phony. Hey, this guy's a great big phony. That's out of your tree crazy. You know what kind of gaslighting garbage that is? Schools closed under President Trump and they will reopen under President Biden has nothing to do with President Biden. This is an insanity of a position. Second rate and low class and proving, proving once again that it's politics before people. It is party before people. That's Ron Klain. Be proud of your chief of staff. As Phil Kirpin points out, schools in competent states have been open since August. And he's right. Of course he's right about that. As I just said, schools have been open here under Donald Trump. What is it like to be somebody who has to politicize everything in all ways and every single day, on, and on every single day, always, every day, all the time, find a way to politicize it? What is that like? It's got to be a full-on crap existence. It has got to suck. Absolutely. It's got to be just pure evil. It's got to be the worst existence, and that's, well, he chooses to live it. He chooses to live in this existence. Meanwhile, Democrats have bigger issues, like the, the investigation into Andrew Cuomo. The FBI and U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn probing Cuomo administration on nursing homes. And so they should. Into the handling of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities during coronavirus. See, they're going to want to focus on Ted Cruz. I've been sharing that Ted Cruz went to Cancun. He's now coming back because he got caught going to Cancun. It's freezing in Texas. He's going to Cancun. You're the senator from Texas. What are you doing? Yeah, you can't go fix the power lines. You can't go fix the natural gas lines. But you don't escape to Cancun. I got an email from somebody that I shouldn't pick on Ted Cruz. Let the Democrats do that. We need him. We need to be supportive and tell the truth uh, about conservatives. I cannot bring myself not to notice complete and total insanity, and I cannot bring myself to be silent on it. I want Ted Cruz with good votes, and I know I'm going to get Ted Cruz with good votes. But my God, this is a terrible lapse of judgment. I mean, just ridiculous lapse of judgment. I should say so. I'm not going to not say so. The problem, and I brought this up earlier, is that people are going to focus on Ted Cruz going to Cancun and then saying that his daughters wanted to go on a little vacation, so as a good dad, he took them. 
Man, that's a great dad. I, I never once said, hey, dad, can we go to Cancun? And he was like, pack. Right? My father tells the story when my older brother was like four or five. Uh, he turned uh, to my dad and said, uh, hey, dad, do you like McDonald's? And my father made a U-turn in the car in the middle of traffic. I don't even know where he was. And they went to McDonald's. That's, that story is legend in my house. My, my, my older brother, as just, just a little kid, guilted my father into taking him to McDonald's. If my brother said, hey, Dad, do you like Cancun? I don't know if my father would have just driven there. The kids asked, so I took him to Cancun. Man, man, being a senator pays good. Hoo-wee. They're going to talk about what Ted Cruz did. I think it's important to mention what Ted Cruz did because he made a mistake. But Andrew Cuomo killed people. The governor of New York killed people. And these investigations are very important. And these investigations have to include a uh, member of the New York Assembly. His name is Ron Kim. He's a Democrat who is saying, oh, yeah, Andrew Cuomo threatened me. Governor Cuomo called me the the next day at 8 p.m. While I was about to bathe my kids, I was with my wife. And for 10 minutes... Uh, he berated me. Uh, he yelled at me. Uh, he told me that, you know, my career would be over. He's been biting his tongue for months against me. And I had tonight, not tomorrow, tonight, to issue a new statement, essentially asking me to lie um, and asking me, like, I, I just, I heard and I saw a crime the other day. And he's asking me that I did not see that crime. And, and that was the line that he, you know, a line that he crossed that, that, that can't be undone. And that's why I had no choice uh, but to come out and, and speak up. That's a Democrat. And a lot of people are like, you know what? That's absolutely an Andrew Cuomo's repertoire. A hundred percent, absolutely, positively believe it. They believe it. I'm thrilled to see that Andrew Cuomo is not getting the protection. It's important. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's not useful to them anymore, and so they're going to get rid of him. And I've said that before. I've thought about that. I've kind of dug in and took a look at that. We should cheer the things that are right. Now, maybe it's true that uh, Trump is out and he has uh, passed his usefulness and he's always been a giant jerk and... They'd be happy to get rid of him. Maybe true. But I think the part that we have to um, engage is the idea that he let people die. He sent them to die. He engaged in a practice that guaranteed people would be harmed, and then he tried to cover it up, and then he threatened people. No one is going, everyone understands how he screwed up, understands how he let people die, understands that he covers up, and there's no reason to think that he didn't threaten, that that isn't exactly what the Cuomo brand is all about. See, it comes from the, the realization that your father was a real man and you are never going to live up to it. So you got to find ways to make yourself feel tough. Your whole life handed to you, Andrew and Chris. Your whole life was handed to you for a last name that you didn't even earn. 
You didn't earn your way into that family. You ain't street your blood. You were just led into the family. And everybody had to genuflect and say, oh, look at the kid Cuomo. Look at the little prince. And then it turns out you don't know how to do nothing. It turns out you know what you had to you know how to do? Let people die, lie on TV, and then when the two of you get together, you yuck it up with prop Q-tips. We see you. Just like we see Ron Klain, we see you. We know exactly who you are. And it turns out the Democratic Party knows exactly who they are too. So what happens from here? I don't know. I really don't know. Let these investigations continue. Let the pressure build. New Yorkers of all stripes will be better off without Cuomo. We may be able to survive a difference in policy. We can't survive autocrats uh, or, or authoritarians who lie, who send people to die, and then threaten you if you want to notice. Oh, if he's out of office in 2021, the year is worth it. I'm Tony Katz. So I was as surprised as anybody when NBC reached out to me to ask to uh, write a piece on the legacy of Rush Limbaugh and to explain to uh, their audience why he meant so much to so many. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833, got Tony. 833-468-8669. Of course, Rush Limbaugh passing away yesterday at the age of 70. A long battle with lung cancer. Now, the person who reached out over at NBC, I've actually known for years. Um, We differ politically greatly, but she is lovely. She's one of the people that I have disagreed with for more than a decade and it's just a conversation kind of like the way it should be i think i would call her a bit eccentric i think she would refer to me as a bit eccentric say lovey she reaches out and says you need to write this piece and i said okay and right now, if you go to NBC News, something called Think, NBCNews.com slash Think, you can find it on my Facebook page, right? Facebook.com slash Tony Katz Radio. I believe we even have it, a link to it at TonyKatz.com. You can check out this article for yourself. Rush Limbaugh was conservative radio's happy warrior. That's what liberals don't understand. And in the... In the um, the argument that I'm I'm trying to make is that the reason Rush connected is because Rush was having a good time, which is probably what the political left hated most about him. Why wasn't he the caricature that they wanted to create of so many of us on the right? Dower. When President Trump called Mitch McConnell dour, I was like, oh, that letter is still brutal. And, and I don't know what uh, what comes uh, from from that. Um, that is how so many of you, right, buttoned up and and not fun and 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 and, uh, you know, scared and afraid. And 
Limbaugh was none of those things. He was having a ball. He was smiling. He was feeling good. Absolutely positively. And that connected with the audience. That connected with people. Here was a guy who who not only was, was having a good time, but he, he was standing up. Standing up is is a big, big thing. And that's why people connected with, with uh, President Trump so well. The line that I use in the piece is that Rush learned early on, or perhaps it was innate, that a point of view will only be valued if you are willing to stand by it. If you're willing to stand by your point of view, people will pay attention to it. If it's something that you're willing to change just as the winds go, that's what people really despise. And Rush stood by it. Rush stood behind it every every step of the way. I I wasn't aware of, you know, when I when I wrote uh, the piece, the connection of Rush and, and William F. Buckley, right? William F. Buckley, one of the great conservatives of the 20th century, you know, when he created National Review, the magazine, it stands athwart history yelling stop, right? That's the way people know it. But that quote continues. It stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when no other is inclined to do so or to have much patience with those who so urge it. Rush Limbaugh brought that message to millions of people. And it turns out he idolized William F. Buckley. I didn't know this. He actually won the Buckley Prize for Leadership and Political Thought from the National Review Institute in 2019. I, did, I didn't know that. I was doing just a little bit of research on that Buckley quote, and I came across it in a piece that was in National Review. Like, wow, look at that. I was making this connection, and it turns out there's a deeper connection than I knew. Uh, I only hope that you like the piece. And and I think some people are going to ask, why are you writing for NBC News? That is the wrong question. I think the question is, Tony, did they tell you what to write? And the answer is no. They said, write this. I wrote this. I had it. She was my editor, my friend. Moved some things around, but didn't take anything out. Turned my staccato way of talking into, into writing. But it's there. And maybe it'll explain something to some people. They'll be able to get an idea of why that audience is so great and so big and so appreciative. If you look at my Twitter feed, it's it's all the same bile and hate. Don't look at social media. You'll regret every bit of it. Read the piece. You won't regret that. This is Tony Katz today. So there was a move... In the NFL. And it involves the Indianapolis Colts. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833, got Tony. 833-468-8669. The Colts, they don't have Phillip Rivers coming back. The Colts, not sure if they want the future uh, to be Jacoby Brissett. The Colts, not really thinking they can move up and draft picks to get to where they want to be or maybe not willing to give up what it would take. So they trade, not for Matthew Stafford, because he goes to the Rams. They trade for Carson Wentz of the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, this is an interesting trade to some until you remember the Frank Reich connection. And then until you take a look at what exactly got left on the table 
Is this a good deal for the Colts? Kevin Bowen from 107.5 The Fan uh, joins us right now. Walk me through the particulars of the deal because what we gave up or what the Colts gave up doesn't seem like much unless, of course, Wentz does well, in which case the Colts give up much more. Yeah, good afternoon, Tony. They gave up um, a third-round pick this year and then a conditional second-rounder next year that will go to a first-rounder as long as Carson Wentz plays um, in 75% of the offensive snaps um, or 70% of the snaps, uh, and then the Colts make the playoffs. So unless really Wentz bottoms out, um, he's going to, you know, play in that many of uh, of the team snaps. So it's looking like a third rounder this year and a first rounder next year. That's what the compensation ended up being. Talk to me about whether or not we think for Carson Wentz, who was a great quarterback and then has had a, a backslide, uh, as a lot of people will discuss it, is that too much to give up for a player of Carson Wentz's caliber? You know, I... <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not overly concerned with the compensation, to be honest with you, Tony. I, I think just point blank it comes down to this. Is Carson Wentz broken or not? And can Frank Reich's, can Frank Reich fix it? That's the question. I think Reich um, physically can get Carson Wentz back to playing at the level of, you know, maybe not 2017 when he was the MVP of the league, but 2018 or 2019 when he was still an above-average quarterback. Now, where I have concern is more between the years with Carson Wentz. I mean, Philadelphia gave him a generational contract 20 months ago, and now they're trading away their franchise QB. Like, that, you don't see that happen very often in the NFL. And, you know, he had this 2020 season, which was awful. But think back to last year's draft. The Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts, quarterback out of Oklahoma, in the second round last year. Again, before he had this really bad season. So, like, what are you seeing in 2019 that has you overly concerned about your franchise quarterback? I think that's where you have some questions, again, mentally about how Wentz handled everything that happens when you're a professional athlete in Philadelphia, a little bit of adversity, some competition, you know, as a backup. Those would be kind of my concerns about him kind of shoulder up. Talking to Kevin Bowen from 107.5 uh, The Fan, 107.5thefan.com. Uh, that idea of between the ears, right? What's going on in, in, in a guy's mind? Doesn't the Frank Reich connection alleviate some of that? Because it was with Frank Reich as the offensive coordinator for the Eagles that he was fantastic and the the theory has got to be that that frank has not steered anything wrong for the colts yet i think the colts feel very fortunate that it was never josh mcdaniel that it ended up being frank reich that it's a marriage made in heaven and when you take the gm chris ballard just on on a football side of things they're drafting the right people they're engaging with the right people they're they're trading for the right people and they've put together a team uh, that can fight and and that can play isn't there a lot of faith or or is this such say this trade based on the faith that Frank Reich can make Carson Wentz right. This trade, Tony, is Chris Ballard betting on Frank Reich's belief in Carson Wentz. That is, you know, what you're trying to put it in the simplest terms, that's what it boils down to. You know, Frank Reich became the Eagles offensive coordinator in 2016. At that point, they had, I think, the 13th overall draft pick. Over the next three months, they traded up twice 
to get Carson Wentz and take him number two overall. Wentz has those two seasons where, you know, he had kind of a normal rookie year and then really flourished in that second season. The Eagles were 11-2 and when Wentz tore his ACL in late December or mid-December. They go on that Super Bowl run with Nick Foles. Wright takes a job here in Indianapolis. Wentz becomes the full-time starter again the next year in Philly, and he's an under 500 quarterback since then. So this is certainly Frank Reich telling Chris Ballard and Chris Ballard believing him that I can get this guy back to being at some adequate level. You know, you would think better than adequate level. So without a doubt, this is the general manager looking his head coach in the eye and saying, here you go. You're the quarterback whisperer, for lack of a better term. Let's see what you can do with a guy that you used to have a ton of belief in and clearly still do. Now, part of this story is how the deal went down. We talk about what the Colts gave up. Look at what the Eagles did. They're going to carry almost $34 million as a cap charge, meaning we're not picking up that money. They're going to have it against their cap space and who they can pay $34 million to get rid of him. Yeah. It kind of goes back to my earlier point, Tony, of like, again, 20 months ago, they gave him this gargantuan contract and said, here are the keys to the franchise, lead us. And now, not only are they moving on from him 20 months later, but as you just pointed out, this cap hit, if I'm not mistaken, I need to double check this, I think it will be the biggest cap hit of any player to any team in the NFL next year. And he won't even be playing for that team. Like, it is referred to as the show. largest I mean, dead money charge in NFL history. Right. It, it, you're just like, what? So, wh- what do we not know, you know, about this story? Like, what is the dysfunction there? It's not like, you know, Carson Wentz, whatever, you know, killed somebody. Like, wh- what's, what's going on here behind the scenes that got this franchise to take such a 180 in their belief of a guy that less than two years ago? you know, they felt like was the unquestioned answer to their franchise. So let's look at it another way. I mean, uh, the Matthew Stafford conversation, I think Stafford would have been a much better natural fit uh, for the Colts, but uh, they don't don't check on me to make uh, those decisions. (laughs) There was no thought about trading up, no thought about Deshaun Watson out of of, uh, the Texans, no thought about anybody else out there? You know, I I won't believe the Watson thing until I actually see it happen, especially within your own division. You know, as far as trading up, I'm a big fan of that. I was a bigger fan of that, honestly. But I think in the Colts' eyes, at 21 overall, it's very difficult to move up that far. Um, You're taking a risk. You need two to tango as well. And that won't happen until late April. You know, this trade for Wentz, uh, free agency, you know, those will be long gone by the time you get to the draft. So I understand the Colts' thinking in this. Again, I worry a little bit about as much as I am a believer that Frank Wright can figure it out from a you know physical characteristic standpoint. The mental aspect concerns me, and the scar tissue. You know, is that scar tissue is it repairable? Is it you know can it get back to to normal? Um, is this just a North Dakota kid that couldn't thrive in Philadelphia when adversity hit, and now he needs to be in a little bit more of a quieter atmosphere? Um, those are all you know kind of questions that I have. Before I, I, I let you go, Kevin Bowen from 107.5 The Fan, uh, this means, of course, that Jacoby Brissett's, uh, he he's no longer going to be a part of this team. He's he's a free agent, right? Or is he going to be traded? Which one is it? Uh, he is a free agent. 
Jacoby so that, Brissett, yep. So that's going to happen, and he'll end up elsewhere. The odds of him coming back to Indianapolis, we can argue, are, are very, very small. What are now the next needs for the Colts? What will they be looking at? Well, who's going to block the blind side for Carson Wentz? You know, Anthony Costanza retirement was a huge, huge loss for this franchise. So you got to find a left tackle. Do you move Quentin Nelson over? Do you go out and make a move in free agency? You'll spend maybe the first uh, round draft pick that you have there. So I'd start there. Edge rusher, your defensive end, we saw in the Super Bowl what that means to a team. That is a definite need short-term and long-term. And then two other positions I have pretty high on the list is probably receiver and, and corner. Those are kind of be my three or four positions that uh, I consider you know, pretty important to address. Kevin Bowen, 107.5 The Fan. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'm Fingers Malloy with the Bourbon Minute, brought to you by the Eat, Drink, Smoke podcast. Well, COVID-19 has had a major impact on our economy, so it should be no surprise that there was a 66% decline in visits to the Kentucky Bourbon Trails member distilleries in 2020. In addition to the Bourbon Trails data, Whiskey Cat reports Buffalo Trace Distillery saw its 2020 visitor traffic drop by more than half, and the Sazerac-owned distillery was down almost 300,000 visitors in 2020 as well. Many of Kentucky's distilleries still have not returned to full tourism operations, with distillery tours either not being offered or extremely limited in order to keep guests separated from essential production workers. Hopefully times will get better in 2021 as the COVID-19 vaccine becomes more available. This was the Bourbon Minute brought to you by Eat, Drink, Smoke. It's your cigar bourbon foodie radio extravaganza. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platform. Eat, Drink, Smoke. In a weird story, Justin Trudeau, we're talking about Canada, my dear people, he decided to say, yes, Canada is guilty of genocide. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669. Canada is guilty of genocide. Now, this has to do with indigenous women and, and girls and some... Well, a horrible story of Canada's founding, if you will. The idea that, you know, the United States, that's the really bigoted nation. No one else has ever done anything bad. It's not, it's just such horrific and shameful nonsense and a total lack of understanding of history. Bad things have happened in the world. Bad things have happened. But there's this idea of, of, well, accepting your guilt, and then I don't know what's supposed to come from that. That's the thing I don't know. Uh, all I know is if you tell me, well, it's got to be more like South Africa, well, South Africa is a massive problem then because their truth and reconciliation led to a constitution that cannot have a, a people in any way uh, su- survive. There's just no way to do it. But what's interesting is that here's uh, Trudeau acknowledging the genocide, certainly not doing anything uh, about it. It It's an interesting article. In effect, Canada declared itself a genocidal nation then carried on as if nothing had happened. But when discussing the Uyghur Muslims in China, his response is, and the genocide there, 
quote, it's a word that is extremely loaded and is certainly something that we should be looking at in the case of the Uyghurs. We will continue to work with the international community and move forward on making the right determinations based on facts and evidence. So you look at yourself and say, oh, we're genocidal. We're awful. But you won't look at China and say, what the hell are you doing to the Uyghur Muslims? Why won't you do that? That's a weird, weird thing to do. That you'll take a look and, and, and decide that you're guilty, you're awful, you're terrible, you're miserable. All of these things. But you won't take a look at what somebody's doing right now and say, that's, that's terrible? I want you to listen to this. Sounds very, very cute. It's actually a, a, a group of Uyghur Muslim children. Uh, Uyghur, U-Y-G-H-U-R. And they're this community in China that is constantly oppressed and abused by the communists. And of course, we know uh, that uh, the adults, the men have been uh, bound and blindfolded and put on trains and taken to labor camps. Women have also been taken to labor camps and raped, or sometimes they're just raped in their homes. I mean, there are state-sanctioned rape happening because of the communist Chinese. It's who they are. They're communists. This is what they are. This isn't something shocking. This isn't, oh, they're doing it wrong. They're communists. This is who they are. And I don't care who the commie is that you know. When you see a communist in the United States, this is eventually the society that they create. Because what else could they possibly create? This is who they are. 150%. But these kids... These kids who are kind of like, I get just talking and babbling. They are all wearing the same jacket and all wearing the same pants and all wearing the same shoes. And all the girls have the same exact hairstyle. And they are saying, my mother is China. We love our mother. We love China. These kids were taken from their parents, separated from their parents, and are now being fully brainwashed, completely indoctrinated. We are watching this happen. And Justin Trudeau is like, hmm, we're going to have to talk to the international community. But he's more than willing to engage in full-on self-flagellation over the idea of, yes, we're a genocidal nation. No, you're not a genocidal nation. Yes, you may have done some horrible things in your history. Acknowledging that is not the end of society. I do not owe anybody for it today, which is why the reparations conversation simply cannot work. Never mind that no one today can make a deal for future generations of black Americans. How would that work? Bring me Cornell West. Let him answer the question. Bring me Henry Louis Gates, an interview I'd love to do. Let him answer the question. How do, how do uh, quote unquote, black leaders today make a deal for black Americans of tomorrow and say, yeah, this is what we took for reparations? 
I don't know how that's going to work. But I think the bigger story is, if you can take a look at your own history and say that was wrong, which I don't think there's anything wrong to do with that. I think that's a very important thing to do. How can you not look at China and say that's wrong? We have to stop that. We cannot trade with them. We cannot work with them. They must be forced to crumble. So these people have an opportunity to be free. These children forced to chant. If you can't do that, you're not a world leader. You're not, you're not worthy of the stage. Justin Trudeau is absolutely not worthy of the stage. My fear is Biden is the same. I'm Tony Katz.